Hi, everyone. This is Mary Beth Hunter with the first episode of the Better Conflict Bulletin's new podcast, The Transformers, where we'll speak with people who are working on making the American conflict better. We'll include peace builders who are mediating difficult conversations between red and blue, teachers training their students in conflict skills, journalists who are committed to being trusted by all sides, and technologists asking what platforms can do to help. First, we're speaking with Mike Wasserman of the Constructive Dialogue Institute. He's the Vice President of Growth and Development for the CDI, and he's working on some exciting projects with online educational tools and original research. After the show, stay tuned for more information about how to stay in touch with us. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Let's start at the beginning. It sounds like your origins were in the aftermath of the 2016 election. Talk a bit more about that. I think for the Constructive Dialogue Institute specifically, we really honed in on the fact that um, there's a robust body of research in the behavioral sciences that tells us how people connect across differences. There's there's really a lot that we know about ways people can engage. Um, and yet we didn't feel like enough was being done to take that body of research and really translate it into practical and scalable tools that could be brought to existing communities. Uh, and when we talk about communities, we're talking about college campuses, high schools, workplaces, religious communities. Uh, so we created CDI uh, really as a, a place where we could build digital, scalable tools that could provide large communities, thousands, tens of thousands of people with some foundational norms and skills to understand where our beliefs come from, uh, how you and I could look at the same set of facts and come to wildly different conclusions, and also some real hard, tangible skills for how we can have communication across those divides, you know, active listening, um, inquiry-based dialogue models, uh, really uh, ways that we can find uh, shared humanity, even, even across large divides. We understand you just had a name change. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's right. So the first five years we existed as Open Mind, and, and some people may know us that way. Um, we, we changed our name to Constructive Dialogue Institute for a few reasons. One, um, as the name implies, Constructive Dialogue is really at the center of what we are working towards. Uh, it's this idea that um, we're not just trying to get people in a room. This isn't just discussion. There's something about uh, a constructive nature to conversations that that we think really needs to be the focus of bridge building work, of depolarization efforts, because th- this work isn't about getting everyone to agree, right? And it's not about um, having one unified view of the world. It is about um, it is about getting people into conversation where they can understand each other's perspectives, where they can explore the nuance of topics. And so we thought that a name that really reflected that idea um, could be powerful. And, uh, and also that there's work that we think needs to be done from a research perspective, from a practice perspective, to get more people to see constructive dialogue as a really foundational foundational priority. Um, and that whether you're trying to 
build more inclusive campuses or whether you're trying to build more engagement in uh, your workplace, whether you're trying to have discussions about uh, philosophy and belief systems within a religious community, that people should look at constructive dialogue as a, as a foundation that they can build those things on top of. You mentioned using mindset and skill set with this program. Yeah, so we, we think that both mindset and skill set are really critical in, in this work to bridge divides or depolarize. Um, the skill set piece, I think, I think people get it, right? That there are, there are practical skills um, around listening, around uh, question asking and inquiry models. Uh, we call it an explorer mindset. Um, there are skills around emotion regulation so that when I'm in a tense conversation and I feel myself going into defensive mode or when I'm ready to attack or try to win the conversation that I can redirect, uh, calm myself down and say, okay, let me ask a question here and shift towards understanding, right? There are, there are practical skills that people can learn so that they um, can have their colleagues feel heard or have their family members feel heard and respected, or they can actually find areas of alignment if there are any to be found. So there's skills that can, that can focus on that. But the reason we also include mindset is because if you're not, if you're not ready for that conversation, or if you don't buy into the fact that there's any value in talking with someone who has a different worldview, then regardless of how many skills you have, uh, you're not going to do it. And so we really think that it's important to get people to understand uh, the cognitive biases, the value structures that, that give us our current views of the world um, as a way to understand ourselves better, but also to understand how someone could come to a different pr perspective. Because if you can understand how someone could come to a different perspective, you're more likely and you're more willing to engage with them to understand it. Sounds like this program can be used in personal lives too. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, most of our work uh, is done with education communities and workplaces. So um, a lot of our work is done across campuses or uh, across a, a corporation. Um, but I think one thing we consistently hear when we kind of talk with folks that have gone through the program together is even if even if this was delivered as part of um, onboarding for new employees, we'll talk to an employee that says, you know, I, I had a really good conversation with my uncle for the first time in two years using your strategies um, because we just haven't seen eye to eye on politics and I just haven't had a way to engage in them. So I, I think a lot of these skills, even though we're delivering them in in an educational and, and workplace setting, they they're applicable everywhere, really. This is really just how people can connect. How many people need to go through this program before we start seeing a real difference? I will say that we, you know, like I said, we really focus on scalability because we think that we need to be reaching millions and millions of people to have that kind of an impact. Um, so far in our first five years, we've reached 55,000 learners, right? So that's not changing the landscape of America or other countries across the globe. But what we have been able to do is work with meaningful numbers of people across communities that, that in some ways are a microcosm of what's happening in the country at large, right? If you think about 
these 10,000 person workplaces that have very diverse sets of employees coming together, or you think about uh, a 25, 30,000 person college campus, um, it can be a melting pot where people across generations and races and political identities come together. And so what we have been able to do in these first five years is work with entire large communities. And we've now conducted three research studies that show that when those communities all go through um, our online program perspectives, we see uh, feelings of hostility across difference uh, drop dramatically, uh, which we call affective polarization. We see uh, openness to learning and new ideas increase significantly, uh, which we call intellectual humility. And we also see our work impacting uh, belonging, feelings of psychological safety, reductions in self-censorship. And so we know that this can have both individual and community level effects. Um, our vision is to grow to reach at least a million learners a year by 2025. Um, but I think really to impact the country as a whole, uh, we need to be doing it this at an, at an even larger scale. I will say for us, our focus is on uh, what we call next generation learners. So 16 to 24 year olds, because uh, we do think that uh, that group of that group of people who are um, often entering the most diverse communities that they've ever been a part of when they go off to college and start in the workforce for the first time. Um, that group of people is uh, developing a moral and political identity as distinct from uh, maybe what they've had growing up and from their parents for the first time. And so it's a moment in people's lives when they're really forming the way that they view politics in the world. And so we think if we can reach uh, that generation and provide them with opportunities to really strengthen the muscles to engage across difference, that that can be a way to really impact the country without having to reach all 350, 400 million people. What's your reach in education versus corporate use? Well, I will say that we, you know, we've in our, in the research that we've done, um, we've conducted a randomized controlled trial experiment with college students and another one with adult learners. Um, and in both cases, we saw these significant and similar impacts. So I'm not implying that, um, you know, those of us who are in our adult years are, are past the point of learning, uh, very much are still able to and benefit from this kinds of skill training. But I think when you think about the change model in this country, right, how do you reach enough people? Um, we have the benefit through our K-12 system and through higher education, both uh, to be able to reach a very large percentage of the population, you know, not everyone's going to college, but if you include both kind of high school and college, you can reach a very large percent of the population. And it's also a, a time in people's lives where there's structured uh, mechanisms for learning. And so um, even though it's not the only time that people can learn, it is a, a powerful moment in people's lives to reach them and a time when there are systems for scaling um, across curricular standards in K-12, across uh, gen ed requirements and orientation practices in higher ed. So 
it's it's both about the audience, but also about um, a realistic way of reaching a significant number of the population. Could this have an effect on political violence? Absolutely, and that's I would say that's um, that's really at the heart of what we are trying to do, right? Because when we talk about when we talk about depolarization, um, we're talking about getting rid of that affective polarization, right? And there's there's really two kinds. There's affective polarization and idea polarization. Um, idea polarization is the is the concept that people have different views across a spectrum. And that's not something we're trying to change. We're not saying everyone needs to have the same worldview, have the same policy opinions, right? But what we are saying is that even when we disagree, can we have this understanding that those who are in the other group, right, that are that have the other view, um, we can still recognize their humanity. Uh, we see that there is a, a way that they can be moral beings if they disagree with us. And by having that kind of shared commitment to humanity, um, you see less violence. You would see less violence. And, and so a lot of the most troubling signs in this country and in other countries right now are things like, you know, 80% of people who identify with one political party saying that um, everyone in the other political party presents a clear and present danger or saying that um, we, we've seen that significant numbers of Americans who affiliate with one political party say that the other, that the country would be better off if uh, a large number of, of those on the other side of the political spectrum died. And so those kinds, that kind of dialogue that um, dehumanizes and lowers the worth of life, especially as it relates to politics, that's, that's directly what leads to political violence. And so to counteract that kind of dehumanizing, that, that to us is really the focus of, of this kind of work. What kind of effect do you think social media and partisan media have had on polarization? Social media, and especially the um, algorithms that have been implemented over the last decade, um, lead to these kinds of echo chambers, right? These, these uh, kind of people get affirmations for what they do believe, and they aren't exposed to ideas that challenge their beliefs. Um, and, and that, along with um, growing partisanship in the media landscape uh, really leads to people operating under separate fact bases. Um, and so they, be, based on what you experience from the news you watch and what you see in social media, you have this reinforcing cycle of saying, there are facts that I believe to be true. There's uh, everything I see reinforces that. And so when I'm presented with information that challenges that view, I just assume it's wrong and I'm told that it's, you know, fake news or what have you. And so um, that that growing kind of separation of realities um, is a huge part of why uh, we think part of, uh, uh, polarization is growing. Uh, you know, really, this has been a trend over the last 40 years. But but those two things, social media and, and partisan media are a big part of why it's amplified so much in the last 10 years. How does having these skills affect people when they're in a disagreement? I would say that um, what we're finding when, you know, a college campus brings our resources to their student body 
or when a professor brings it to their course or when a, a company uses this in their onboarding. Uh, what we are finding is that uh, people are practicing uh sharing openly, sharing vulnerably, sharing more fully their viewpoints, and they're practicing listening to the beliefs and viewpoints of their colleagues, peers, fellow students. Um, and by doing that practice, right, that practice listening and understanding, find common ground where it's possible, um, understanding the nuance of topics, the fact that I'm not the exact opposite of you, but that we may actually have kind of shared motivations, even if we come to different conclusions, practicing those skills, uh, that, that I think is one of the things that we found is most impactful because then when you have a, a work meeting or a discussion on a college campus about who should be invited to speak or what the name of a building should be or how to address the contested history of a, of a campus, um, people are more likely to ask questions when they disagree, right? As opposed to attack or uh, become defensive. They're more likely to um, try to understand rather than try to convince. And so I think those are really some of the lasting, the lasting benefits that we see. I love that you're using this term practice like yoga. Tell me more about that. Yeah, I don't think it's, you know, I don't think it's something where you've arrived, right? <laughs> you know, learn, I mean, all learning is, is an ongoing, is an ongoing skill. And I think, um, you know, the skills of kind of self-awareness and self-understanding to say, this is what's going on in my mind right now. This is how I'm uh, processing information. This, these are the, the cognitive biases that, that my information is being filtered through. You know, that's, that's a, that's an active and ongoing practice that people need to bring into their lives. Um, and so, yes, there's practice to develop this skill, but it's also something you have to keep doing. It's a muscle you have to keep working out uh, or else it atrophies. Do you think white acceptance of this program could change the way people think about democracy? Well, let me put it this way. I think when we think about democracy building, I think often people talk about these pillars of democracy as voting um, and people's ability to vote, uh, democratic institutions and the strength of those institutions, um, and even media landscapes and how information is, is accessible, right? And, and those are often viewed as the, the pillars of a strong democracy. Um, and we think that civic health or civic culture or the way that we engage with each other uh, is the is the grand the ground that those pillars are planted in, right? And when we lose the ability to connect across divides, or when people are not willing to have a conversation because they assume they already know a hundred percent of what you believe based on a uh, a label, um, then that's we you know those are shifting sands that <laughs> that democratic pillars are trying to be placed in. And so what we're really trying to do is reach enough people, uh, millions of people, so that we can strengthen that foundation that we're trying to build a democracy within. Um, and that when enough people are able to engage in complex ideas, uh, find areas of alignment and um, shared humanity across difference, 
that it's then easier to talk about voting rights. It's easier to reinforce uh, democratic institution strengths. Um, and so for us, the way that we are approaching growing, like I said, is really investing in this next generation of learners and leaders. And we're trying to do that through making free resources available to educators. So we have um, a f- version of our full online learning program that high school teachers and that college professors can bring into their classrooms at no cost. We're really trying to lower any barrier to implementation. Um, second, we're working at an institutional level. So partnering with entire schools and districts or partnering with entire campuses on ways to embed um, online learning tools, training, instructional strategies uh, across an entire campus. So envision, um, you know, a 25,000 student campus where 5,000 new students are coming onto the campus every year. And we're working with colleges and envisioning doing this more, more often where every single student learns these skills as they set foot on campus. Uh, so to have a campus say, this is part of what learning means here. To be a thinker and learner in the world, you have to engage across different ideas, and we're going to help you do that effectively. So we're, we're beginning to do more work at an institutional level. And then the last thing that we're trying to do is find other peers and collaborators in the space, other bridge builders um, who are developing solutions where our, our kind of research tested online learning could help as a foundation or as a step one, you know, because I think all of this work uh, is better when done together or in concert rather than, um, you know, a one-off learning experience here, a one-off deliberative dialogue there. And so we're really trying to uh, provide resources for the field more broadly to say, you know, embed these research-backed strategies in in anything that we're doing. So I'd say those are some of the core ways that we're looking to expand. Uh, And beyond that, for us, uh, you know, the other reason that we changed our name to the Constructive Dialogue Institute is because we wanted that institute piece to speak to uh, a commitment to research. And so we we research the efficacy of our tools, and that's, that's critical for us. But we also are trying to do research that can inform the field more broadly. And so we are working... Uh, with the Aspen Institute on uh, on projects uh, like building a blueprint for college campuses navigating moments of conflict. Um, we are planning to conduct a national survey on the state of polarization in K-12 classrooms and looking at some of the ways that um, the divisions in our dialogue across the country are showing up in classrooms and high schools and the way they're impacting students and teachers. So uh, that kind of work is is also uh, a way that we think we can inform the field, get people uh, thinking about dialogue and thinking about ways to improve dialogue. What's the best way for people to find you if they're interested in your work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we are, as I've shared, you know, we are looking to build a big tent here, and so we'd be excited for anyone that's listening to this to come and explore ways that we could support their communities. So uh, constructivedialogue.org is our website. And if you go there, you can find more information about Perspectives, which is the online learning program that I talked about. You can also find more information about the research that we've done 
um, on our online learning program and some of the research that we're doing with collaborators to inform the field more broadly. Outstanding. Thank you. Mike Wasserman of the Constructive Dialogue Institute, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Mike, thanks so much for your time and your insights. Come find the Better Conflict Bulletin at betterconflictbulletin.substack.com to subscribe to our free and weekly newsletter, including an edited transcript of today's conversation. If you have any feedback or suggestions for our work, find us on Twitter at better underscore conflict. We appreciate the time you spent with us. See you next time, and remember to have an explorer mindset.